Hi everyone, my name's Diddy. I've got the privilege of reading from God's Word this morning. Uh, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 14, starting at eight, uh, verse 8, um, down at verse 23. That's Acts 14, 8 to 23. Uh, now, if you don't have a Bible, um, we've got some Bibles up at the back. Uh, please grab one that is for you to keep and to take home. Um, and yeah, enjoy uh, reading the living, breathing word of God. So Acts 14, verses 8 to 23. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left them, left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. Well, well, good morning, everyone, and, and welcome to Turngabia Baptist Church. My name's James. I'm one of the pastors here. I've got the joy of opening up God's Word with us this morning. As we're going to continue our series in the Book of Acts, um, when we're looking at how the gospel is unstoppable, and we're taking, as Corey said, we're taking a bit of a plain view. Um, and in a few years' time, hopefully, we'll come back and we'll go in depth. But a couple of weeks ago, we, we encountered that the gospel was for, 
For the religious, we saw that Paul was a man who knew God's word, who was moralistic, who was doing everything he could do as a religious person to earn the favour of God, and yet he was an enemy of Christ. And yet we saw that the gospel is for the religious. And today we're going to take a different um, perspective. We're going to see how the gospel is for the whole world. So please pray with me as we come to God's word today. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the joy of our salvation. But Father, we also recognise that you've sent us out, that Jesus is on his throne and he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And so Father, you've entasked us with that. We're empowered by your Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, it can feel so daunting, that task that's in front of us today. And so Father, as we come to your word, prompt us, engage our hearts And Lord, help us to know how to live out what it means to be followers of Jesus this week and into the weeks to come. And we pray this for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. I enjoy cultural experiences, um, especially food. I like eating a variety of things. And so on Friday, Friday's my Sabbath, so I take Friday off and and I thought, well, why not then take my beautiful wife out for lunch and stare into her beautiful eyes and tell her how much I love her. And we went up to West Point Blacktown, and up on the top level, it's just a, it's a, a cultural experience with food, right? You've got Nando's, you've got chicken, you've got Volcano, where you can go and get a good ribeye steak. You've got Chinese, you've got Korean, you've got, you know, you've got Max Brenner's. It's just a whole variety of things. And then on Friday, we just couldn't make up our mind, but we chose the Vietnamese restaurant. We've, I've never had Vietnamese before, and I don't think Ali did. And so we picked it. And we ate it, and it was absolutely beautiful. I loved it. I love cultural experiences to see culture. Because, see, culture is it's just what we do. And all of you have brought a culture to church today. All of you have a different culture. You've come from different nationalities from all parts of the world. And culture is really what we do, but we're heavily influenced by what we see and we hear. What we see and we hear heavily influences our culture. But on Friday, I'm sitting there... As much as I was enjoying my beautiful wife's company, I was also contemplating, though, looking at the variety of nationalities from all over the the world. Here in Western Sydney, I sat there and I thought to myself, wow, that's a big job in front of us. Why? Well, as I think about the waitress, or I think about the people who were islanders, or the the Indians or the Sri Lankans, the people that were there, I, I thought to myself, if I was to say to the waitress... Have you heard of Moses and the Exodus? I think they probably would say, what are you talking about? David and Goliath. They may have heard an expression in a movie, but who is David and Goliath? That if you were to go to the Ten Commandments and say, hey, here's the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. What are you actually talking about? You know, for us, many of us probably have grown up in in a biblical worldview where we just know those things and yet... Most people in Western Sydney, if you brought out the Bible, go, what, what, what is even that? But if you were to go and say, hey, look at the Old Testament, they'd think, oh, that's good for you, but I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. What are you doing that? Like, it made me feel like, wow, like that's, you know, maybe for some of you 50, 60 years ago, you could just, here's what sin is, here's what God's wrath is, put on a convention and pull, and, 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 you, and you think it's, it was a lot easier, but now it's like, even the word sin and the word wrath or even atonement, like they're just so foreign to us as concepts in our culture because we are a very multicultural city. And as we make disciples of Jesus in a postmodern world, how do we press on? 
Now, well, today I think there's a couple of things we can actually learn and take home from this passage about how we press on in a postmodern world as we seek to make disciples of Jesus. Because as we come to Acts chapter 14, there's a big turning point. I think there's a big shift here. Um, up until now, Paul and Peter and Stephen, all these apostles, they've been, they've been sharing the good news with people in synagogues and just outside. Of, they've been going to cities where actually the Bible was known, right? Not the New but the Old Testament. Like if you quoted a psalm, if you talked about Moses, the audience probably knew what you were talking about. They were Jewish. They believed in the one true God. Monotheistic worldview means they've believed in one God. But now we, we find a shift here as you come to Acts 14, where I think we find a shift where they're coming to a polytheistic worldview. They just believe in many gods. And in, in, in Acts chapter 2, 7, 8, and 9, even in Acts chapter 13, you'll see that Paul and the apostles, they use Psalms, they use Isaiah, they use Old Testament scriptures to make an argument about who Jesus is. But Acts chapter 14, it's very different. How do we press on? Because see, Paul comes to the city of Lystra. Look at verse 8, it sets the context. He's come to the city he engages the culture. Now, the city of Lystra, it's, it's sort of located in modern-day Turkey. Um, but it was a city that worshipped gods. They worshipped and they sacrificed to the gods. They had many gods. In, in coins and inscriptions from that city, we find that they worshipped Zeus and Hermes, Crete. They just had many gods. They even honoured the emperor. See, in the ancient world, Caesar Augustus was seen to be divine of one of the many gods in whom you worshipped. And culture, culturally, that's all they knew. What they saw and what they heard was that there were many gods. Now, some of you may remember that I was over in modern-day Turkey this year on a study tour trip. And I got to go through like Ephesus and Laodicea. Now, I didn't get to go to Lystra. But there was this city called um, um, Aphrodisias. And now this was, it's probably a few hundred, it's down the road from this place. Now this, this building was a little bit later than this setting, but I was struck by this building because as you walk down the streets of this city, you would see monuments of people carved out in stone everywhere. What you saw and what you heard was that Augustus was God, one of the gods. You heard that Nike was a god. Next slide and you'll see there that there's Augustus on the left. And there's the God of Nike in the middle. Now, some of you might be going, oh, he's naked. Augustus is naked, and he's naked for a reason. Because it was telling the people that as they saw it, that Augustus was one of the gods that you were meant to bow down and worship. Nike was one of the gods that you were meant to celebrate. So this city was founded around 25 BC by Caesar Augustus. But I, that's very new territory for the early church. They've been dealing in synagogues where people know their Old Testament. They've heard the Ten Commandments. But here, they've never heard anything like that. They were seeing and doing things that were snapshots of what they saw and what they heard. And so for us, as we go and make disciples of Jesus, how do we actually press on? Do you feel like in Western Sydney, it's like, man, how do I press on with this? Well, I've got three things for us. The first thing is we engage culture. We engage our culture. Now, what I mean by engage, I'm not saying that you take on the culture and you live it out exactly, because there are things in culture that are ungodly, but there are things that we can redeem. I'm not talking about that kind of engagement, but I'm talking about engaging people and our culture where they are at with their worldview. 
Because what can happen for us as Christians is that, that our culture and the language that we use, the jargon that we assume that they understand, we think that they're going to understand it and yet when we use it, they've got no idea at all about what we're talking about. But we engage them of where they're at. Now, the opposite to engage is reject, shun, cancel. Now, as Christians, you may feel that from culture, but as followers of Jesus, we don't do that. We actually, Jesus goes to the woman at the well. He sits in the house of sinners. He listens, he talks. And so we find here, look at verse 8, we find verse 8 in Lystra, you know, Paul, they find a man who's been lame since who's never walked, Paul speaks, and obviously he's speaking the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the man doesn't put his hand up, he doesn't walk down the front, but the man, I don't know how Paul, like, he looked, and he could tell that the guy had faith. I don't know whether there's some facial expressions. So maybe you could work on your facial expressions for me, so that it looks like you're engaged. But, no, it's, it's, but you know, so there's something about it, he goes, this guy's, you know, he's, he's got faith, he's believing in Jesus, and he's healed. And the city is like, wow, that's pretty incredible. And they're only reacting to what they've seen and heard. Have a look at verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes. Now at this stage, I don't know whether Paul can understand what they're saying. Who knows? He might. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Right? It's like, wow, like, here's Zeus, here's Hermes. And we can tell that they really think they're gods because they haven't just pulled out a small pigeon, they've pulled out the bull. And they put the wreaths, like they're there to sacrifice things. So they're only reacting to what they've seen and heard. Because, see, there's a legend in Lystra. Now, it's a legend, it didn't happen, but there'd been a story in which they'd passed down, that they'd seen and heard, and, and it was just a natural part of their culture, that as they worshipped the gods, there was a story about Hermes and Zeus, that they came and visited this city, Lystra. They came and visited, and they went from house to house and were rejected by every single person in that city until they came across an old couple, an elderly couple, who welcomed them in. Hermes and Zeus came back and they wiped everyone else out bar that elderly couple. And so I wonder in this moment, are they going, hang on, if we don't sacrifice to these gods, will the same thing happen again? If we don't sacrifice, will we have the favour of Zeus and Hermes? But Paul's like, when he's realised, like, Paul's gone, hang on, there's something going on here. And with deep grief, and I reckon with deep emotion, he, he runs in, he tears his clothes, which is a sign of grief, and it's a sign of horror about what is about to happen. And he's, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. You're seeing it wrong. If you look to us as gods, all you'll end up finding is vain and worthless things. They'll let you down. And what we see, I reckon what we see is we start to see that Paul starts to engage this culture in a way that's intelligible of what's happened in Christian terms. So in the ancient world, in this city, they would have had gods for everything, right? 
They would have had a God for sex, a God for romance, a God for relationships, a God for fertility, a God for farming, a God for work. They just had a God for everything in whom they sacrificed, and they'd sacrifice to the one in whom would give them the best thing. And really what they're doing is they're actually sacrificing to God's hoping to find meaning, purpose, identity, and happiness. They have the favoured life. And in this moment, they think Paul and Barnabas are going to offer that to them through them, themselves. That if we sacrifice to them, our life will change. But what I think, what you notice is that Paul understands, or somehow he's obviously grabbed hold of their worldview And, sees, and he sees that these things are worthless and powerless. He lets them know that. See, he doesn't, necessarily, he doesn't, get, he doesn't go straight to the Bible. He, he talks to them in a way to try and get them to connect and understand. And he wants them to see that these idols that you bow down to are worthless. That... In the end, they're not going to bring you meaning, purpose, satisfaction, and happiness in life. Have a, have a look at verse 15. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're coming here, we're bringing you good news of what Christ has done. Like, good news is a story of victory. We're bringing you good news. We're bringing you good news and telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way, and yet he has not let himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. See, in the ancient world, they believed that if you sacrifice to the gods, you, you sacrifice them to gain things, right? You'd sacrifice to the, the weather god to gain good rain. You'd sacrifice to the God of fertility so you could conceive. You'd, you'd, you'd do all these things. And, if those, and you'd do that to gain something from the gods. But Paul says, now there's one true God. There's one true God who has given you all those things. See, they don't, they don't, they've never heard of the Bible. They've never heard of the one true God. And, and he says to them, all the good things that you want that you're trying to get from the gods, you've actually already received from the God that you have not yet acknowledged. See, you've already had all these wonderful things. Look at creation. He's saying, look at, this, like, look at creation, look at the crops, look at the food. He's saying, there's one true God who's given you all those things, and yet you've never worshipped him, you've never sacrificed to him. He's come to you. Now, that would have been startling for this culture. It might be startling for you here as a non-Christian as well. Maybe, maybe you're a skeptic. You're here today and you're like, yeah, what, what is the stories of Moses and David and Goliath? And you, and you just, you know, it's great to have you here. But 
But what you notice here is that Paul says that worship, like worship is what you live for. Worship is what controls you. Every day, all of us worship, whether you believe there's a God or not. We all worship and find meaning, purpose and identity in something or someone. And Paul meets them where they're at. He meets their cultural worldview and he shows them how what they are looking for in the things of this world can only be found in Christ. He, he moves towards the gospel. But you, you might go, okay, so that's a polytheistic worldview in this city of Lystra. And you might go, well, that's, that's really great, James. It's great for Paul. That's great for him. But we live in Western Sydney, Australia, where, you know, they probably don't even believe in God or are we, you know, that's good, but our world's very different. I don't think it's actually much different to Acts chapter 14 at all. We too live in a polytheistic worldview. Now, you may not believe in an actual God, but everyone's looking for God in the things of this world. Now, you probably don't have little statues of Zeus and Hermes that you bow down to and you idolise on your mantelpiece. But you are looking to sex, relationships, your kids' success, sport, your career to give you those things. The father who sacrifices his family, who sacrifices his kids at the altar of success of his job, that will give him happiness for his life. Or, or the mom who sacrifices times with the kids because she's constantly scrolling Instagram, looking for images on Pinterest as well, in the way that she can maintain her image and her look so that when she goes out, she's, she's seen as important. And so she'll sacrifice her kids for that. And what Paul says, if you want to sacrifice to those things, they will not deliver. They are worthless and empty. What do you sacrifice to? And in these moments, what Paul's saying, I think what we'll find out through the rest of the Bible is he's saying that Jesus is the answer to it. Jesus is all you need. That when you submit to Jesus, you will find meaning, purpose, identity and happiness. That's the good news of the gospel, see? Because it's not good news for the father who sacrifices his kids for the sake of his career because one day he'll have to retire and that happiness will be gone. One day that mum who sacrifices everything for the sake of her beauty, wrinkles set in pretty quick. That's why the gospel is good news. Because our meaning and our purpose and identity can be found in God. That sin has broken that relationship between us and God. And that we don't go to God, right? The good news is actually, no, no, it's not that we sacrifice and do things. No, no, that God himself actually came down to us. And that we don't sacrifice ourselves, but he sacrificed himself so that we could have everlasting life, satisfied, fulfilled. So as we seek to make disciples of Jesus in a postmodern world, how do we press on? Well, I think, we, I think we get a hint here. We press on by, we, we engage our culture. So we, we don't have a choice as followers of Jesus to change the gospel message or to edit it. It stays the same. We don't have to. It's a beautiful thing. 
but we're to begin where they're at, to find a point in which we can connect with them and move them to showing them the need for Jesus in their life, that Jesus is the answer to the story that they're trying to find. Because I think for all of us, or maybe for some of us, there is a danger for us if you've grown up in church your whole life. You've gone to Sunday school. You've gone to church. You've worn the right things. You've sung the right songs. You go to a Christian school. You leave school. You go to a Christian college. You leave a Christian college and you find yourself in a Christian workplace. And so what happens is we're just so Christian jargon, which is it's a really good thing if that's your case, right? Not... not but what can happen is we're so disconnected from the real world that we don't even we use language that they don't even have a clue what it means. We just think we want them to start where we're at and what we hold to. I suppose that leads to the question: How flexible are you? Because to be this flexible, it requires work. It actually means you have to sit and listen. Can I tell you? It's a lot easier just to say, "Here's the four points to how you be saved." Here's why you need Jesus. When actually everyone's looking for Jesus, they don't know they're looking for Jesus, but they're looking for Jesus in different areas. Uh, how well do you know your neighbour? What they love, what they yearn. Because see, here's what it means. What, what you did 50 years ago may not be the contact point today. You know, 50 years ago in Australia, the word sin, and, and people knew what guilt and shame was. People had gone to church. But today, we, we, we sit there at West Point and it's a world where they see a very different world. They don't even, they've never even heard of the Word of God. And so what are some ways maybe for us as a church? What's some ways for you to help you engage? Well, I, I, I wrote a couple down. Love them. Love the people around you. Sincere love. Listen to them. Listen carefully to what they share. Like, what people talk about is what they're interested in. Ask meaningful questions about what they love and why they do what they do. As we make disciples of Jesus, let's press on and, and be a church that, that engages our culture. See, what did Paul do? He, he ran to them. He didn't run away from them. But, that, but there is a reality that as you engage culture and as we take Jesus to them now some will be saved some won't be but there'll also be opposition to it but as you take the good news of Jesus there, there will be hardships and so that's the second point how do we press on well we, we endure expected hardship we endure it now I don't know have you ever had things in your life where you go from one hit to the next where one after the one after the other you, you just feel like your life's falling apart and you just don't seem to get a clear end and it's tough. You feel like you've been hit for six. You're lost for words, perplexed. You know, you can, you, can, you can go through things in life that you weren't expecting. It wasn't the expected outcome of your life that you wanted. And, and here in, in chapter 14, there's reports probably get back to these other cities, places where Paul has been. They probably got back to them that Paul's been stoned. Now, here's something funny, just for a moment. This, this is about culture, right? Someone shared this verse in a, in a university setting. Now, when I hear that Paul got stoned, he got thrown with stones. Now, and, and, but for some other people, because they didn't even, they thought he got stoned by marijuana, right? Now, that's funny, right, isn't it? But isn't that helpful for you that when you share the gospel with someone, when you use a word like stone, they could be taking it very differently? But here, that's a side point, I got distracted. But 
so, the, so Paul, he's been stoned. <laughs> they thought he was dead. They left him. He gets up and he goes back into the city. And they've probably heard this. And these are young Christians from a polytheistic worldview. They're young and they're hearing about Paul sharing Christ's love and the, the gospel with these people. And, and they would have been thinking, oh no, possibly. What's going to be encountered for us? Because from their cultural upbringing, when you face suffering, when you face hardship, when you face persecution, it's a sign that God's removed himself from you. And so as they hear this, maybe they're thinking, oh no, is, is Paul actually on the right direction because he's getting persecuted and he's suffering? And, and Paul says, no, be str- I, want to, I want to encourage you to endure hardship because actually it's not a sign that God's removed his favour from you. It's actually probably more that you have the favour of God as you take the gospel out. He wants you to endure it. See, we can have unmet expectations. See, unmet expectations lead to doubt. Now, 16 years ago, well, about 16 or 17, about 16 years ago, might be 15, um, it's still in my mind, right? So I've been scarred by this incident. I've got trauma from it. Um, I was hanging out with some mates. We're on, a, on a, um, we're on a holiday trip. We went to the Gold Coast. We went to the surf. We went to the theme parks. And, and for me, I, you know, after a big day, you want a decent meal. Like you want meat, you want solid food, you, know, you want something you know, to fill that stomach and, and, and fill you up. And so this night, we're all sitting in the B&B, or I don't know whether it's B&B, or it wouldn't have been Air and B&B back then, but it was a B&B, and we're sitting there, and like, I'm feeling like I want a decent, hearty, you know, country kind of feed. And my mates who are all country said, oh, we'll, we'll go in and get some food. And my expectations were a hearty country feed. And they come back. And they gave us all our food, and there was these plastic trays about this big, filled with something that I'd never eaten before called sushi. <laughs> and I was devastated. My expectations were not met. I was pretty annoyed. Now, I love sushi today, so don't get me wrong, I never touched it before. But, but in that moment, I had an expectation that I was going to get this, and I got something else. So the next day, what does it do? The next day when my friend said, hey, I'm going out for dinner, can we we'll bring some food back? I'm in a lot of doubt and I'm worried because my, you know, because of what's happened. Because see, unmet expectation leads to doubt, whereas Paul says, now, it's expected that as you take Jesus to the world, you're going to face hardship. You'll face pushback. That when you feel like you're knocked for six, it can be easy to think that as a follower of Jesus, it wasn't meant to be this way in our life. But Paul wants just to encourage us, endure. Because there'll be times that we engage our culture where you're going to feel exposed, you're going to feel vulnerable, you're going to feel like you've been sidelined. And it's in that moment you may ask, is it really worth it? Endure through it. See, Paul wants to strengthen the church. He wants to strengthen that you're not, you're not losing the favour of God. Actually, you are God's people. That the very nature of sharing Jesus will lead to those things. Look, look at verse 22. He's strengthening them. He strengthens, it actually says, he strengthens their heart and their soul and the disciples and he encourages them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, you might think, is he saying we must go through those things to get salvation? That's not what Paul's saying. 
Right? He's actually gone back to churches that have converts in them. He's talking to Christians here and from other parts of the Bible. You understand that he's not saying that your suffering will make earn you merit so that you're saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that no, no, in this life, the now not yet, in this, this world, that as we tread through it, you're going to have to endure it. And at the end, we get eternity. We get the kingdom of God. We're going to endure hardships. There is going to be pushback and there's going to be resistance as we seek to make, see thousands of lives transformed by Jesus in Western Sydney and beyond. But the path we follow is the path Jesus followed who said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So he wants you to endure the expected hardships. It's a reality check for us. Now, as you probably know, I don't mind running. Well, I don't know whether I like running. I, I like running because it means I can eat more food and I can enjoy and, and keep fit. But there is something about running that's difficult. And I've taken up running years ago. And I remember in Forbes, I'd be running with a friend. And running has these moments in it. The first one kilometre, I just want to give up and walk all the time. After about two or three, running with my friend Cody, <coughs> he just run so fast that my legs were hurting, my lungs... And he'd ask me the question, hey, James, is it your legs or your lungs that are hurting? I'd go, it's my legs. Okay, push harder. Oh, man. And then he'd say, is it your lungs? And he'd say, just slow up. And, and what he was doing was he, he was teaching me what to expect as I ran, right? There's a bunch of emotions that go on as you are a jogger. The first K is darn hard. The first three, you run a bit slow. And the last three, you run. And so what he was doing is he's preparing me so that I would endure know what I was expecting and the Christian life is a marathon that we run and Paul wants us to have a reality check to go hey when it comes don't be surprised by it see every other world religion and cultural point of view sees that hardships and persecution are an interruption to our lives You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes, when, you know, here it's talking about persecution from sharing Jesus. But whether it's suffering or whether it's persecution or whether it's hardships, I often see it as, a, as an interruption to my individual story. When actually Paul says it's a part of the bigger story of God. Be patient in our suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So when we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. God's at work in us through our hardships. He's making us more like Christ. We get to see firsthand God transforming lives in Jesus. And therefore, friends, as a church, it's just a great reminder for us that as, as we encounter a postmodern world, as we seek to make Christ disciples of Jesus, be reminded to press on as we engage our culture and press on enduring through the hardships. Don't be surprised. The Christian life isn't rosy in this. We engage our culture. We enjoy expected, we endure expected hardships. But finally, we actually encourage one another. Point three, we encourage one another. See, what we notice here in this passage is that, that we, we get to get a bit of a taste of what Paul does with church planting and how he establishes churches. 
He encouraged, you know, there's ascending church, there's planted churches, and they encourage one another and vice versa. See, by the end of chapter 14, by the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are back exactly where they started. Can you put that slide up of the map? I think I see how it comes up. By the end of chapter 14, they're back at Antioch at the starting point. That's where they started in chapter 13. They were sent out by this church. It was a sending church. It sent Paul and Barnabas, chapter 13, out on a mission trip. And they went around and they went to Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. They went to Iconium. They went to Derby. And what's surprising about this by the end of chapter 14 is that they're at Derby. Or just before they... And, and, and it would have been a lot quicker for them to have just gone a little bit further east, hopped on a road, and they could have got very quickly to the starting point of Antioch. But what's striking is that Paul and Barnabas go back the other way. They go back not to new cities to plant new churches. They actually go back to the places in which they were thrown out, and they go back and they encourage the churches that they started. So they went there. They preached the gospel. People were saved. Churches were planted. And he nurtures them. He strengthens them in their faith. Press on. In all the complexities of the world that we live in, amongst the trials and the setbacks, he, he encourages them and he strengthens them and encourages them. He appoints elders. He gives structure. We get a glimpse of what they do. They're like, the church is never finished. Our job is to send and to plant, to encourage. To be a church that loves to see other churches started. But see, he encourages them. We encourage one another, but how do we encourage one another? See, you know, we can encourage one another and say, hey, hey, Bill, you've done a great job today. Give him a clap, right? We can say, you've done a great job today. And you, and you pull, yeah, there's good things. We should encourage people's gifts, you know. And you know what? You might get in a huddle and you do the high, you know, one, two, three, high. And we, we encourage everyone, like, you've done a great job today. Keep pressing on. But do you notice how Paul encourages? Have a, look, have a look there at verse 27. I, I, I love verse 27. They've reported all that God has done, not what they have done. You know, like he encouraged them to say, they, they come back and say, hey, look what God's done through us. They've never elevated themselves. They're not saying, hey, give us a high five. They're actually saying, no, we, we want to celebrate. We're encouraging you by, have you seen what God's doing? Have a look what God's doing. They're encouraging one another, not by individual stories, but by what God is doing amongst the churches and in the world. What an incredible story. See, we live in a culture that elevates stardom. We live in a culture that wants to praise the individual. The stardom mentality that we have. And that can even infiltrate the church where we uplift and have star pastors and star leaders, the one that you go to, the one who's the most important, or the one who gets the bank card. You know, it's, it's become a culture where that's infiltrated, where they're more important. But what does Paul say? He runs to the, the people and says, I'm just like you. But we never have a church. I'm no more important than any of you. Never elevate me above you or anyone else. Because it's what God's doing. What we hear from culture, what we see and what we hear is a survival of the fittest. The ones who press on, who do it all in their own effort, they're the ones who should be praised. They're the, the guy who wants a job promotion, the ones who get promoted and have good careers are the ones who work harder and do the right things. The one who has the best financial portfolio is the one who invests well. See, our culture praises and tells us that it's survival of the fittest. The best who do the most will get 
what they deserve. But the very nature of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ encourages the very opposite because it says, actually, no, it's all done by Jesus. It's all God. It's what he has done. That we're saved by grace and not by works. That we must realise that as we engage our culture, as we endure and as we encourage one another, we're reminded, we must realise that we're no more than rescued sinners who are filled with the Holy Spirit sharing the hope of Jesus to a broken world. The gospel tells us that we've been saved by grace, not by works. See, what have we seen this morning? As, as we make disciples of Jesus, we seek to make it in a postmodern world. How do we press on? We impress on by engaging our culture. We endure hardships. We, we encourage one another. But I think to engage our culture is probably one of the harder things. Because I do wonder whether there's a tendency for us right now in our cultural moment that as we reflect on Australia, whether it's on politics, whether it's on gender, whether it's on sexuality, whether it's on marriage, sometimes I think as Christians, we look down on that. We use words of hate. We use of words like, those kind of people go to hell, not me. We, we feel... A bit like I'm better than them. But that's all they've seen and that's all they've heard. That's their cultural worldview. And what does Paul do? He runs to them, he tears his clothes and he says, I'm just like you. A sinner saved by grace. You know, we've got a big task in front of us. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. And I, sometimes I just throw my hands up and go, what do we do? But I, I think we, we can be encouraged through today's passage to, to engage our culture, to listen, to find out what their heartbeat is, to bring Jesus to it, to endure the hardships that we should expect and that we love to encourage one another by sharing how much God has done amongst us, through us, and what he's doing in Western Sydney and beyond. Let's pray. Father, we too were once lost, but now we've been found. Father, we were either like a Paul who was ultimately religious or we were just like these people in Lystra who were just bowing down to the gods of, of our world that we've created in which we try to find our hope and our purpose. But Father, we just want to thank you that by grace we've been saved. Lord, this morning, um, yeah, the, the, the task is, seems overwhelming and yet we can have confidence because your spirit, is, it's, he's within us, you've empowered us. And so, Father, give us confidence in the gospel message to share that with a world that is lost and hurting, a world that um, is trying to find meaning, but they can't see that they're disconnected from the one true God and that they can be reconnected through Christ. 
Father, help engage that in our hearts and our minds today. Because we love you, we adore you. And Father, we thank you for your word. Amen.